John 14 will be taking it up in verse 25 through the remainder of the chapter. What we hear now is not the word of man, but it is the word of God. Let us give our attention to it. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you love me, you would rejoice because I said, I am going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandments, so I do. Rise, let us go from here. As far as the word of God, let us pray. O Lord our God, we rejoice to be a people called out. We rejoice to be a people saved in your mercy through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We rejoice that even now, according to your appointment, we hear Christ as the word of the living God is preached and proclaimed by the man of God, with the blessing of the Holy Spirit, to the people of God assembled before you to worship you. O Lord, we come in dependence and reliance. We come in obedience and submission. And we look to you that you would bless that which you have appointed, that we might be built up in our most holy religion, and that Christ would be exalted above all. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. may be seated. Our times are troubled. Uh, In every generation that experienced troubled times, we seem to think that it's worse than others because it's our experience. We look and the economy is faltering. War in Europe and there are fears, even people saying World War III is nigh at hand. Over the last two years, a plague has killed many. Matters that have never been in question since the beginning of time are now hotly disputed. What is a male? What is a female? Family, the very bedrock of society, is assailed from every side. The unborn are destroyed and discarded. Our children have become pawns in the cultural wars. The one true religion is rejected. But we could go on and on with all the turmoil, all that is unsettled. The anxiety that could grip us is not uncommon to man. Since the fall of Adam, there has been turmoil in the world. Even Adam and Eve's first parents, Cain, rose up and murdered his own brother out of spite, jealousy, bloodshed at the hand of a brother. And it has never ceased since then. Is there peace? Can peace be found anywhere? We all want peace. We want to live quiet and peaceable lives in our day. The 11 disciples who had remained with Jesus, who were in the upper room with him that night, um, when Jesus said that uh, the world was against him, the world was turning against their master, even the religious and political leaders of that day were calling for Jesus to be put to death. And Jesus has told them, he's been with them three years, now he's telling them that he's going away. They cannot come where he's going. 
Where is peace? Where were these men to find peace? But they were not alone. Their good shepherd was with them. And he knew their needs better than they knew themselves. And they were not alone. Even as we are not alone. Our good shepherd is still with us. Even in our day. Jesus has spoken to their needs with instructions and promises. Instructions like love and serve one another. As we saw after he washed their feet. Promises that they will not be forsaken. They will see him again. That he will increase their knowledge. That they will commune with the Father. These are all closely connected together like so many links in a golden chain. Prior to this, Jesus told them plainly, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus had not only opened the way to the Father, he was, he is the way. He is the only mediator between God and sinners. And in order for this so great a salvation to be secured, Jesus must go away. He must die in the place of his people. And indeed, he was going away for a little while. Then they will see him, and they cannot go with him even as he goes to the cross. But after they had seen him again, then he must go away to the Father. In this context, Jesus was drawing to the close of the first part of his teaching in the upper room. He gives additional encouragements, promises of peace for troubled hearts, promises that endure even to our day. It has been said that John's gospel is shallow enough for a child to paddle in and yet deep enough for an elephant to swim. Mark Johnson says the closing verses in this chapter provide the elephant's diving pool. Here Jesus draws together the threads of who he is, why he came, and what he would shortly do. But with this, Jesus points to the comforter and to peace that is to be found in the mysterious will and purpose of God. End of the quote. We're going to use four main headings, each beginning with peace. Peace in troubled times, peace in a hostile world, peace when under attack, and peace through union with Jesus. Our theme then is peace that is found. Peace is found in Jesus alone. He secures it and he gives it to all who look to him in faith. Peace is found in Jesus alone. He secures it and he gives it to all those who look to him by faith. So we begin with peace in troubled times. The disciples had been in a literal storm. It would seem by the gospel accounts at least two different occasions that they were in a little storm on the Sea of Galilee. Once Jesus was in the boat with them, another time he came walking in the water in the midst of the storm. And to them, they saw with great amazement the power that Jesus had to calm an actual storm, a storm of violence and upheaval. They saw how great his power was. But now something much greater is happening. There's a spiritual warfare. The warfare of the ages has come to a head. Satan is determined to strike a fatal blow against the seed of the woman. It's very helpful that we were in Genesis before we came to John, and there we saw that great contest begin in the garden with the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And as it unfolded in the pages of Genesis, we saw the contest that continues to our day, although there's a culmination in, in, in a victory and a decided change when Jesus goes to the cross. Well, Jesus is at that moment when Satan is summoned all his evil agents, 
You know, there's a little wonder that we see so much demonic activity in that day. Satan now has the Son of God on the earth and he's determined to destroy him, to overthrow him. Such is the arrogance of that fallen angel that he would seek to undo even the Almighty. And so he's summoned all his evil agents. He's co-opted the leaders of that day, even as they freely, willingly colluded together with one another and with Satan to destroy the man known as Jesus of Nazareth. Satan has even entered one of Jesus' followers. As we saw earlier on in the upper room, the Satan entered Judas, and he went out, and it was night. The eleven who remain, they know that dark clouds have gathered. They are aware of the tensions and the sense of doom. You remember when Jesus... <coughs> Jesus announced his determination to go to uh, to Lazarus. And the disciples said, but Lord, you know, there are those who are seeking you, seeking to destroy you. And is that wise? And he said, we're going to go. And he said, okay, we'll go. Um, so they, they're aware. There's been this apprehension within the apostles for some time. Jesus has been openly declaring to them that he was going to be crucified, that the religious leaders were going to rise up against him and and destroy him. He's uh, made it very clear that he is going to die. Jesus has spoken of these things in a very positive way to his eleven, those that are still with him, dying, being buried. But he's also spoken of his own resurrection. They were there with him uh, as they approached Bethany, and Jesus announced to Mary and Martha that he himself was the resurrection of the life. He's announced that the Father has given him authority to lay down his life and take it up again. And yet all this is so unfamiliar, so unclear that we hear in this passage even how they, they think that Jesus speaks to them only in parables. And then he says, I'm going to speak to you plainly. And they say, ah, now you're speaking to us clearly. All these things, uh, though they're being told what is to come, and yet it's, it's just so confusing because it's all unheard of. It's, it's unknown that someone would die and, and yet rise again even of themselves. Unfamiliar, unknown. Is that not the character of our days? Things are unfamiliar to us. Things are unfolding that are unknown to us. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. And uh, oftentimes we get over-exercised in our minds with the, the what-ifs. We find ourselves in fear and turmoil. It's all rather frightening. It's into this situation that Jesus speaks. Verse 25, These things I have spoken to you all being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring you to remembrance all the things that I said to you. My peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let it be afraid. It's interesting, the statement that Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. Um, you've heard me tell you before that in the Greek there's a way to uh, to say don't start doing something, and there's a way to say you're already doing it, stop doing it. This is one of the latter. He says stop letting your hearts be troubled. They're already very much troubled, and often we find ourselves in a same situation. The reality is that becoming a Christian does not remove us from the troubles of this present evil age. We live in the world. We are surrounded by the world, and the events that are unfolding in the world are events that 
envelop us. Sometimes they pick up members of the church and they're carried along in the turmoil and unrest. And there are times when God's own children are uh, taken away by the, the sweeping waves of turmoil and trouble, either through war or famine or pestilence. But God does not leave nor forsake us. Jesus again reminded his disciples, he reminds the church through them that the promise that the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he was going to come to them in great power. And my friends, the Holy Spirit has come and abides with us even in our day. We have the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, our Heavenly Father appoints trials for us. We face situations according to God's own plan and purposes. These disciples find themselves with Jesus. They find themselves in these circumstances, things that are unfolding. Uh, it's not accidental. God hasn't uh, somehow slipped up and, and they've fallen into such times. No, it was by God's appointment that they would be there, even as it is in our day. The facts are that God appoints whatsoever comes to pass. God is sovereign. He governs all his creatures and all their actions. Whatsoever comes to pass, comes to pass because God has ordained it. God has decreed it. And so it is that James opens his uh, wonderful little letter with these words. My brethren, seems so counterintuitive, doesn't it? My brother, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. But there's not a period there. James goes on to explain the purpose of the trials that we fall into, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work. So patience isn't the end goal. The patience, let it have its perfect work that you may become perfect. That is the word that means mature and complete, lacking nothing. When we come to Christ, we have our salvation, but we need to grow in holiness. There's a work of sanctification to be done within us. We lack our own personal holiness. And it's through the trials, through the suffering, through the circumstances that God has ordained, as we look to him and depend upon him, that we grow in holiness. We experience the peace that Jesus believes with us. As a matter of fact, the storm that rocked the boat that carried the disciples and Jesus was sent to teach those disciples to look to Jesus in such times. You could say that the experience on the sea and them seeing who Christ was, what he was capable of, was to prepare them for this storm uh, that they find themselves in the closing days of this week. They had been given a clear picture of who Christ was. It was he who called out of that situation to the waves and to the wind, peace, be still. And suddenly... It was so. Jesus had authority over the winds and the waves. They obeyed him. And certainly he has authority over the affairs of their lives and our lives. So it was, as the storm was about to break over them that night, Jesus says to them, Peace I live leave with its y'all. I told you that Sunday or two before that most of the yous in this passage are the plural Y'all, my, my peace I leave with y'all. My peace I give to y'all. Did you see what Jesus did in this situation? Did you hear him? Jesus gives them reasons they should not be afraid. This peace comes from Jesus. It is his peace that he gives to those whom he loves. He was speaking very specifically to the church. 
And he is the one who gives it. They did not get the peace on their own. The peace was not something within them that they could somehow stir up or muster up or will up. It comes from Christ and he gives it to those whom he loves. We don't obtain this peace on our own. It is a gift. The peace of God in Christ Jesus doesn't come through grit. It's a gift from God. And we should look to the one who gives it with gratitude and praise. Notice that Jesus does not uh, promise as he's going away. He doesn't promise these men, um, as some proclaim uh, in the name of church. Uh, We put that in very specific quotes uh, in our day. He doesn't give them wealth. He doesn't promise them fame, fortune, or power, nor influence. He doesn't even promise them safety. As a matter of fact, he tells them that sufferings come. Peter will be crucified upside down by Peter's request. And indeed, if the record's true, almost all of these apostles, those 11 that are with him, will die at the hands of the world because they love Christ. And we should think it's no different in our day. God enables us. He gives us peace even at such times. J.C. Ryle, that wonderful Anglican bishop of an earlier generation, says, Jesus gives inward peace of conscience, arising from a sense of pardon, of pardoned sin and reconciliation with God. You see, the peace that we long for, it begins with being right with God. When Jesus speaks peace, that peace comes through him. That when we are united to him, that we are we are recipients of so great a salvation that as our good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, he then gives us life. We who were in rebellion and filled with transgressions, he comes to, he redeems, he washes and cleanses. He makes us first alive unto God and then he brings us to God. And we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first and the most primary peace. And thus, having that, we can face the turmoil of the world because... We're right with God. We do not need to fear what man will do to us. Jesus even gives such a commandment. Children, I want you to get a a legal kind of word before I go on. When a man dies, if he's wise, he, he has written out a will. It's a legal document that attests what his will is after he dies. Isn't that amazing? That you can die, can you still have certain things done? even though you're dead and gone. And that's why they call it a will. It's a a will and testament of the things that he would have done. And these legal documents use fancy legal words. One of those is to bequeath. That is to give after the fact, to give to others. Matthew Henry then uses this language of the will when he speaks of Jesus. Quoting from Matthew Henry using that legal term. When Christ was about to leave the world he had made, his will, his soul, he bequeathed to his father. His body, he bequeathed to Joseph to be decently buried. His clothes fell to the soldiers. His mother, he left to the care of John. But what should he leave to his poor disciples? Those who had left all to follow him. Silver and gold? He had none. But he left them what was infinitely better. His peace. Peace with God 
and therefore then peace to live before God. How are we supposed to understand this peace with God? I've already kind of set out the two categories, but let's consider it more fully. The Word of God speaks first of peace with God. You remember when Adam sinned, it placed him in a state of rebellion. He died, spiritually died, his flesh began to die, and he was in rebellion against God. That place of communion and fellowship with God was lost. And so all Adam's descendants, that includes us, are at enmity with God. We're in rebellion. We're out of sorts. There's a division. There's a barrier. We can't just come to God and God can't commune and fellowship with us because we are sinners. And so it is that to have peace, we must first have peace with God. This problem of sin must be addressed. Listen to what Paul says of these. You remember some of this, I hope, from when we were in Romans several years ago. Paul says, therefore, we have been justified, or having been justified by faith. Notice the the tenses. Having been justified. This is done. First, we have peace with God. That follows. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope and glory, the glory of God. We are justified. When we have right standing before God, when our sins are forgiven, when we are legally declared not guilty because of Christ, we have peace with God. My friends, you cannot have peace with God any other way. And you will never have peace of any sort until you have peace with God. And that's what Jesus came into the world, to give peace to sinners, to bring rebellious sinners into right relationship with the living God. And so we can be right with God. Jesus has satisfied God's justice so that we can live. He shed his blood to wash away our sin. And his righteous obedience is accredited to our account. It's not just enough to have our sins forgiven, uh, our guilt paid for, to be washed white. We need to have right standing with God. And Christ gives us that as well. His Righteous record. His record of obedience is put on our account. It's a legal declaration as well. And so we come to God. And the reality here is our exodus is accomplished. Remember the children of Israel were in Egypt and God brought them out of Egypt in an exodus to bring them back into the land of promise. A a foretelling of the entering into heaven. And how is it that we come out of the kingdom of darkness and out of bondage? It's through Christ. That's the exodus that Jesus comes to bring. And indeed, He has, in Christ, we have been brought to the Father. Our exodus is over. We're at home with the Father. But it's already not yet. We have peace with God now. And we're waiting to enter into our saints' everlasting rest when we shall be gathered into the very presence of God. But secondly, we receive from Christ peace, the peace of God. This is the result of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, even as Jesus said, the Helper, the Father, will send you the Holy Spirit. He will come in my name. He will teach you all things and bring you to remembrance of the things that I've said to you. Peace of God comes through the Holy Spirit. And since we are peace with God, the peace of God then flows through Christ by the Holy Spirit into our hearts and is spread abroad. We have peace. God's perfect peace. 
even in troubling times. That's what Jesus is teaching these men who already have peace with God, that they can have the peace of God even in their circumstances. This is what Paul, why Paul was able to write to the Christians in Philippi, a very pagan city. The world was against them in that place at that time, and yet Paul wrote to them, be anxious for nothing. It's a good word, isn't it? We have a lot of reasons that would a lot of things that would provoke us, provoke us to anxiety, to stir us up. But the Word of God says to be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. You see, there you're coming to God in prayer, petitioning for the peace of God to come to you. And you can do so with a confidence because you have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And Paul goes on, and the peace of God, there it is, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. You see, the gospel has the gospel is relevant to resolving our conflict with God, but the gospel also then continues to be relevant as we live out our lives. We have the peace of God in Christ Jesus as we live. Well, before we go on to the next point, let's just make some application. What does this look like in troubled times? We see it in the lives of the three Hebrew children, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Uh, you read about them in Daniel 3. You'll remember that Nebuchadnezzar, he's conquering and conquering, and he's become full of himself, and he has this massive golden idol erected, and he's commanded all these uh, musical instrument players to come, the best of the best, and that whenever the instruments play, and remember that passage, you can hear of all these old instruments, that whenever the sack button, I can't even remember all of them, it's just long list. Whenever they play, everyone is to fall down before this image of Nebuchadnezzar. And if you don't, you remember, children? Nebuchadnezzar also built a furnace. And it was near at hand, a hot Furnace. It, it seems as though it was something like a, maybe cut into the side of a cliff because you could look into it. It was also you were capable of being thrown into it. And he says, whoever will not bow to my image and worship me, you'll be cast. Are we being called upon by the world of our day to bow to its principles, its precepts? Are, we being, are there demands being placed upon us to reject the word of God, to deny the Lord Jesus Christ, to go after the way of the world, to, to confess things that are false as though they were true? And, and there's a consequence. Uh, like, you know, thus far, you know, we hear of cancel culture, people losing jobs, being shunned. But Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they were faced with a fiery furnace. They had the peace of God because they had peace with God. They, by faith, looked to God. And for, the, for them, it was the coming one. They were looking for the seed of the woman. And they had faith in the promises of God, and therefore they had peace, the peace of God, before Nebuchadnezzar. And this is how a heart of faith speaks in troubled times. These three men together said, Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning Fiery furnace. What a confidence in God. You want to throw us into the fire? Our God's able to deliver us even from that. After all, he's delivered us from the fire of hell for the wicked. They go on. And he will deliver us from your hand. There's this confidence. He's able to deliver us out of the fire. But regardless, he will deliver us out of your hand. 
O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image that you have set up. And they wouldn't bow. Nebuchadnezzar said, strike up the band. And they refused to bow. And Nebuchadnezzar was furious. Heat the furnace seven times hotter. Trouble? Turmoil? Opposition? And we even face that. No, but let us be encouraged by these men. They won't bow. And so they were taken up, and the men who went near to the furnace to throw them in, it was so hot that they perished. Mighty men of valor, strong men of war, fell down from the extreme heat of that fire. And Nebuchadnezzar looked into the furnace, and what did he see? He saw Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah walking around. And, oh, there was a fourth man also. And he appeared unto Nebuchadnezzar as the Son of God. And Nebuchadnezzar called him to come out. What would you expect, children? Think about it. You've got these mighty men. The heat kills them. These three come out at the command of Nebuchadnezzar. What would you expect of them? Would you expect their, their clothes to be singed, you know, consumed, uh, walk out naked, burns on their flesh? No. Our God is so mighty. Children, do you realize that when they came out of the fire, there was not even a smell of fire on them? Not even the smell of fire. Their hair was not singed. I burn in my backyard from time to time. I know some of you guys do too. You get your big brush pile out and you're getting rid of stuff. Uh, nothing gets going. You get a little bit close. You know, you feel it. I've had singed hair on the back of my hand and I'm not anywhere near it. None of that. I'll come into the house and what does my wife say? Oh, I smell the smoke on your clothes. It's in your hair. None of that happened. Our God is great. And strong to save. And our confidence should be like the three Hebrew children. He can deliver us out of the hand of the world. He will deliver us. He may deliver us and bring us out of the fire. But even if they destroy us, he will deliver us and bring us home to heaven. That's why Jesus said, don't fear those who can only destroy the body. Fear God who is able to destroy the body and the soul in hell. Our God is able to deliver us. We live in troubled times. Let us not lose sight of this. We can have peace in the times of trouble. And if we are at peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, we can know the peace of God even in troubling times. We can also have peace in a hostile world. Peace in a hostile world. Our second point, this is not a hope so peace. I hope I have peace. That's not the nature of our religion. It's not a melancholy or sentimental sort of thing. Nor is it a peace without a cost. The peace that we have came to us freely because Jesus suffered in our place. Verse 27, Jesus told the world that he was giving peace. And he would not give, what does he say? He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. What does he mean by that? Not as the world gives do I give to you. Dr. James Montgomery Boyce commenting on this passage. He says there's at least four features of worldly giving. The world wants to give us stuff. The world offers us stuff. The world tries to buy us, does it not? But there's four aspects of worldly giving. So when Jesus says, you know, I don't give as the world gives, what, is, what are some of the things he's talking about? Well, the world's giving is insincere. The word gives from Ill, world gives from ill motives. Their motives rarely 
match their words. The world gives out of impotence. The world is not able to provide true and lasting peace. At best, it offers a truce. That's what we've seen over the recent decades is uh, Christians have given way to the world. Oh, just give this little bit. And then they want more. Dr. Reeder, as he comments in his daily podcast on current events, like Al Mohler too, sounds the same note, that the world's not looking for a, a, a truce even. They want us to capitulate. They're, they're going to press us to the point that what we once denied and called sin, that, we, that they're going to press us until we celebrate sin. That's the sincerity and the impotence of the world. It's also scanty or maybe stingy would be a word we understand. Never giving all that is needed. And the world never gives all for true peace. It is also selfish. Whatever is given is always from a motive. Uh, what's in it for me? What can I get out of it? Jesus says, I don't give in that manner. The Roman Empire was known for its success on the battlefield. It, it was massive because of their techniques, uh, the way that they waged war. And they conquered all the nations before them. And then they celebrated, interestingly enough, they called it the Pax Romana, Latin children for the Roman peace. And indeed, God was in that. It was a blessing for the early church uh, because it was a common language. Uh, there were roads to many of the places. This is one of the reasons that Paul could travel is there were good roads. And the pirates had been put down and you could board a ship to go from point A to B with, with some confidence that pirates weren't going to overtake you. The marauding bands that hung out in the wilderness places had also been brought to justice. So there was something of a peace. But when we think of the larger picture, this Roman peace was costly. A Scottish chieftain of that day understood what it was like to deal with the Romans. He had done battle with them. And he captured what this Roman peace really was. And this leads us to think about what the world offers. The Scottish chieftain said, they make a desolation and call it peace. They make a desolation and call it peace. That is what we see unfolding before our eyes. All that is right and true and faithful and honorable and commendable is being destroyed. A desolation is being wreaked upon the land. And, and we're told if, if we'll just give in, we'll see a peace. Jesus doesn't give as the world does. He doesn't come with desolation. He comes to bring life. Jesus made peace with God for his people. And he did so in a world that is hostile to him. The hostility is coming to a head even as Jesus speaks these words. Jesus secured a peace that he gives even with his own blood. He shed his own blood to save sinners, to save those who are in rebellion against the Lord of glory. Is that not the most sincere act in all of history? Each of these are in contrast to the worldly manner. Sincere. But Jesus' peace, the peace of Jesus, is powerful and effective. It's a real peace. It's not in name only. He satisfied divine justice. He won the victory. And as the victor, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. There was no impotence in our Redeemer. He accomplished the will of the Father. Whereas the world gives scanty, just a little Jesus 
He gave all. Even his life. He laid down his life for his friends. He died a painful, shameful death at the hands of hostile men. Again, the world is selfish and is always looking for what's in it for me. But Jesus secured our peace with God so that we can know the peace of God. He did so for a people who are in rebellion. Jesus sacrificed himself. He gave all. He gave his very life to give us peace with God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Praise God for so great a Savior. You should have noted that Jesus did not come into the world that was eager to cooperate with God and to do everything to support Jesus' mission. No, the world was hostile against him in every way. And yet, even as they always opposed the Prince of Peace, he came to secure peace. Why? Because God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his only begotten Son. Jesus came into the world. He came to his own, and his own received you not. He talked about hostility. His, the nation that he was born into rejected him. The people of Nazareth, where he grew up, they, they mocked him with, and were filled with such disbelief that he could do no great miracles there. And then what? They even took him out to the edge of the city and attempted to cast him off a cliff to his death. That's the hostility that Jesus meant at every turn through his life. And yet in that hostility, Jesus brought us peace. And of course, the greatest hostility that we faced of all was even sin. Sin, which infects us, sin that pervades us, a sin that masters and rules over us, never does us any good. It only does us harm. And we see how great is that harm when Jesus hung on the cross to secure our salvation. Before we go on, let's consider the peace that Jesus gives to all who believe on him for salvation is an everlasting peace. Another aspect of the way the world gives is it gives and it takes away. Jesus gives. And he gives. And he gives. His promises are yes and amen. There's no going back on him. He doesn't pull back. There's nothing lacking and there's nothing more to be supplied. Friend, are you tired of hiding from God? Have you run out of leaves to cover your nakedness before the searching eyes of the Almighty? Yes, amen, you will find peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. He gives eternal peace, for he is the Prince of Peace, a peace that passes all understanding, a peace that is secured in heaven. But thirdly, we consider peace when under attack. You can see these are all related, trouble, hostilities, but peace went under attack. Jesus says, my peace I leave with you. It makes it clear that he's going away. If he would say that, my peace I leave with you, then he must be leaving. But he leaves his peace with them. Jesus has been telling his disciples this right along along. His departure was one of the reasons they had alarm. And yet Jesus was assuring them that in his going, his peace would remain even though he was going away. Look what he adds in verse 28, 29. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you love me, you would rejoice because I said I'm going to the Father. For my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. He's foretelling what's going to happen. So as it unfolds, they'll say, this is what Jesus told us about. It's coming to pass just as he said. 
We're at this point in John's Gospel in the upper room where what's just around the corner? What's right outside the door, so to speak? What is looming? Jesus' hour has come. And what is it that's in that hour? Suffering. Unimaginable suffering of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let's be honest. We truly have no idea the degree and the depth of what our Lord suffered to secure our salvation. We've never seen him in a Roman crucifixion, but that's only the physical aspect of it. It it seems to be, in in human history, one of the most inhumane, most painful ways ever devised by man for men to die. Jesus was crucified. He hung naked before heaven and earth for our sins. And he suffered in body and soul and spirit. But Jesus would also be forsaken in his humanity. In his human nature, he would be utterly forsaken by his father. And thus he would cry out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? All he has known to that point was intimate communion and fellowship with the father as the second Adam, as the son of man. It's only been that. But now as a sin bearer. He is forsaken, utterly forsaken. And he suffers even in that moment the full weight of God's wrath for our sin. Praise be to God. If you are found in Christ Jesus, you will never know what the wrath of God is like. But if you do not have God as your Savior, if you are not secured in the Lord Jesus Christ, hear me clearly. You will experience the wrath of God for sinners forever and ever and ever without end. The scripture talks about being like a lake of a fire, an eternal burning fire, where the worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. We have this little picture of it in the parable that Jesus told of the rich man, who longed to just have one drop in his eternity of suffering, just one drop of water, for just a brief moment of succor and comfort, and there's none to be found in the lake, the lake of fire. Jesus underwent the wrath of God for our sin as he hung on the cross. But let us not lose sight of what's on the other side. Resurrection. Glorious resurrection. Is that why we gather on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week? We remember that Jesus rose again. It was not possible that the grave should hold him. It could not keep him under his power. As he is triumphant. And he came forth with a victor's crown. Triumphant over sin, death, and the grave. Satan defeated his head. Crushed. Hallelujah. Amen. The God-man, the Son of God, had then returned to heaven to his Father. He had accomplished what he came to do. And thus he would return to the Father. And Jesus said that they should rejoice that this was so. D.A. Carson says it well. Speaking of Jesus, returning to the sphere where he belongs, to the glory he had with the Father before the world began, and to the place where the Father is in undiminished glory. Uh, We must comment on verse 28. Jesus says at the end of that verse, For my Father is greater than I. We must comment on this. We must understand this correctly. There are many cults that had been born out of misunderstanding this passage. 
They make their error right here, claiming that Jesus is something less than fully God. The problem is they don't understand that he's the God-man. He makes this statement as man, the Son of Man. He makes this statement as the second Adam. This is in respect to his incarnation. Remember, he is God come in the flesh, fully God and fully man. And he speaks here as Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of Mary. Those cults claim that Jesus is something less than fully God. You think about that. If you if you base such a, a critical thing on you know, one statement here, you're missing the whole context of John's gospel. What have we seen? Here we are at the end of the 14th chapter. What have we seen throughout John's gospel? What has John gone to great lengths to show to us as he has written? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That he is God come in the flesh. And that believing this, that he is God, we would have life in his name. That's exactly what he says in John 20, 31. These things were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's John's thesis statement. That's his main theme. That's what he's communicating. And, and to hear all that he has to say and come to this passage and take and turn that all on his head, it's beyond stupid. It's rebellious. It's blasphemous. It flies in the face of God. And thus we rightly call them cults. Soul-damning cults. Those who get caught up and carried along with them, they have no hope. The religion is false. There is no life to be found in the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, and any others who would embrace such a horrific and heinous lie. What Jesus is clearly teaching here is that when he took on flesh and became man in the womb of the Virgin Mary, he came as the Son of Man, the second Adam, he came as Isaiah describes him, Jehovah's servant. He came to do all the will of the Father. He came to do everything that Adam, the first Adam, failed to do. And he came, as that Adam should have been, in full subjection and submission to the Father. And so when Jesus says the Father is greater than I, it's with respect to Jesus' humanity. It's the work that he covenanted to do when he, as the Son of God in glory, agreed to come then in our flesh. To save us unto God. And that required that as the second Adam, he would be fully submissive to the will of the Father. That's what he's saying. And in that respect, the Father is greater as the, as the God man, and as man, surely deity is greater than God. And, and God is, is, is in his uh, human, I mean, is in his divine nature, he remains completely God. There's no alteration, there's no changing. His deity is unchanged by his incarnation. And everything that the Father is doing, the Son is doing, the Spirit is doing, there's complete cooperation and unity in the work of God in all three persons. Jesus' departure then will not affect the peace that he gives because he's asked the Father to send a helper. This is the second time in this passage that Jesus speaks to the Holy Spirit. He's going to do so two more times. We'll talk more thoroughly about it as we come to those other passages but here we want to understand that the Spirit manifests the peace of Jesus in our hearts when we are under attack. Even Jesus, in his humanity, is living dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Do not miss that. In his humanity, his humanity is like unto our humanity, and only the thing that's different is it's without sin. He doesn't have the sin nature, because Adam was not his father. He comes from God. 
And yet, he lives a life completely dependent on the Holy Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit, communing with the Spirit. And so it is that the Spirit manifests the peace of Jesus in our hearts when we are under attack. He communes with our Spirit. He teaches us from the Word of God. The Spirit calls to mind the promises of God when we are assailed and assaulted. The Spirit strengthens us when we are weak so that we can stand. The Spirit helps us when we have failed and fallen. Isn't that wonderful? We've stumbled in the way. Maybe out of weakness. Maybe out of deliberate sin. The Spirit is there to help us. To pick us up. Through Christ Jesus to bring us back to the Father. So even though Jesus is seated in heaven in his humanity, he is with his people by the person of the Holy Spirit. The eleven disciples were soon to leave the security of that upper room and they were going to go out into the night. There's something of a double meaning in that. They were to go out into the night. They were going to out to meet very real hostilities. That which they feared is going to become very evident to them. Satan was in Judas. You know, even Jesus' words right at the end of this passage, he's mindful of how things are unfolding out there as the Spirit gives him understanding. Judas is full, has been filled with, this, with Satan. He is coming with an angry armed mob. They are looking for Jesus. It may well be that they came to that upper room first. Judas recognizing that he had missed them, then took them to the garden. But there is a timetable unfolding that has been ordained by God and it is unfolding according to God's timetable. But these 11 men are going with Jesus. And they're going to encounter very real hostilities. Isn't it interesting? Jesus is teaching these wonderful passages for us. Peace by peace I leave with you. Not as the world gives. The Holy Spirit is coming from the Father. All these wonderful promises. And while that is being said in the upper room, this decadent, diabolical, rebellious mob is making their way to seize the Lord Jesus Christ. The great battle of the ages is about to come to a head. It's for this reason that Jesus utters the words in verse 30. I will no longer talk with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. It is not because... Satan beat God in the battle that he's the ruler of the world. Let me just back up a minute. When we look at the, the, the phrase, this ruler of this world is Jesus calls Satan. It, Satan has not beat God in battle and therefore gained this title to be the ruler of the world. It is because Adam, who had been appointed by God to have dominion over the world, sold out to Satan. He failed and he capitulated. He gave up that which was his. Now, Adam, Adam may not have understood the reason he that this happened that day. He didn't, I don't think, understand the, the far-reaching implications of taking that forbidden fruit and eating it. But Adam did know he was disobeying, that he was rebelling against God. And Adam listened to Satan and the lies that he told, and he sold out his birthright all for a piece of forbidden fruit. Remember that Satan offered to Jesus the, the kingdoms of the world and the, the wilderness temptation at the end of the 40 days of fasting. Satan offered him. He says, if you'll just bow down and worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. That's what you've come for. You've come to secure them back unto God. Just worship me and I'll give them to you. Satan had a right to do so. It was not an empty offer. 
When I'm able to defeat Jesus in the wilderness of temptation, Satan now is seeking to gain it by killing him. Remember the parable Jesus told about the, the property owner, planted a vineyard, put a wall around it, a wine press, and a watchtower, rented out to men. He sent his servant to collect what his, was his due, the rent, which would be part of the produce, probably uh, in goatskins as wine. And they beat him up, sent another, beat him up, sends a son. What do they think? Say, like, oh, this is the son. If we just kill him, then, then, the, then the, the vineyard will be ours. That's about the religious leaders. And this is even about Satan. He thinks that if he can destroy the Son of God, that everything will be his. That he will have triumphed. Jesus' victory over Satan took away what Satan had gained through lies. And as the second Adam, he now by rights, having won the victory, rules over the world. The nations are his, as Psalm 2 well, so well proclaims. The other thing we want to understand, Satan ruled over the world. He's, he's called the, uh, the ruler of this world because God has permitted him to be so. God has allowed him to rule over the nations, to deceive the nations, even the scripture says. But when Christ has been victorious, it's the gospel, the good news preached to proclaim the crown of the world that has undone Satan and destroyed his ability to deceive the nations any longer. But Jesus says, I must no longer talk, or I will no longer talk much with you. He doesn't say I'm done. This is going to be important as we move forward. I no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has nothing in me. He has no hold on me. He did over Adam, but not me as the second Adam. I have obeyed the Father completely. I have been absolutely trustworthy. I have done all the Father's will every day, every moment, completely obedient. And Satan's out there. He's on the march, completely blind, even in this final hour. It is his plan that he will kill the Son of God, will bring his final and complete defeat of God. But he doesn't remember what Jesus or what God told him in the garden. He says, He, you will bruise his heel. That's all you're going to do, bruise his heel. But he will crush your head. Children, think about that. Which is worse, to get your heel bruised? Have you ever bruised your heel on a stone? Maybe jump off a big rock down on a hard surface and hit a little too hard and you bruise your heel. It's sore for a few days. Or maybe you struck your heel against a stone and it's bruised and sore for a few days. That can be painful. Every step you take, it hurts. Right? But what's it worse, that or having your head crushed? What happens when a head is crushed? The animal dies. A very sad memory from when I was a child where my grandfather's barn and my sister wanted one of the barn cats and there's a system of pulleys and doors so you could open the door, let the cows come into the milking parlor and then you close them. And so we opened the doors, the cats came in, they were drinking milk and I yanked the rope to close the door so we catch these little wild barn cats and they were out the door. I caught the last one with the door and crushed his head. I was sick. There's no hope for that cat. That's just how graphic God is. But remember this. Christ has crushed Satan's head. He's finished. Christ has won the victory, even as he was under attack. And so we find the second Adam in this hostile world, 
He had none of the comforts of this world. He's surrounded by a nation that hates him. The political and religious leaders hate him and have long been resolved to murder the king of glory. What a contrast to the first Adam. A lush garden. Everything was for him. Everything was blessed and abundant. What a contrast. But Jesus is steady. He is faithful. He obeys the Father even unto the end, to the death of the cross. Some application. Jesus has told all his followers, the church, because the world hates me, will hate you. That's what we should expect from the world. Hostility, turmoil, trouble. It hates Christ, so it will hate us because we love Christ and we want to obey him. My friends, you should never be at step with the world. Children, young people, the world wants you to walk alongside them. The world wants you to go in their way. And my friends, to be in favor, to be uh, in step with the world is to be in opposition to God. Remember that when the world cries out, come and join us. It will be fun. We'll make lots of money. It will be a good life. To walk with the world is to be an enemy of God. We're to be a peculiar people and we should expect to be attacked. But we should be encouraged because Jesus said, I have overcome the world. Jesus obeyed the Father. The writer of the book of Hebrews said he learned obedience. As he grew and matured as a son, he learned obedience. And he was full of faith in the Father's promise to him that he would lay down his life. He went to the cross believing the Father that he would lay down his life and take it up again. Opposition and attack from the world are not new then. It's been going on since the beginning. Abel was attacked by his own brother, Cain. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they faced dangers, fire, and lions. But in their time of attack, God sustained them with his perfect peace. God has not changed. I can't tell you who delivered you out of a fire by you walking back out of it without even the smell of smoke on you. But I can assure you, if the world throws you in a fire, God will deliver you. Your last breath here will result in your next breath in heaven. You will be with the Father. No more turmoil, no more hostilities. Stand on these promises, the promises of the Lord Jesus Christ. We conclude with this reality. This peace comes through union with Christ alone. Jesus said in verse 31, But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me a commandment, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. There's more teaching to come. This command seems to be a call for them to cease reclining at the table. Get up. They've been reclining at the table. says, get up. It's a call to prepare to leave for the Garden of Gethsemane. More will be said. More will be prayed. Jesus seems to teach with them as they go. I believe he's going to say more in that upper room. But right now he says, get up from the table. It's time to get moving. There's a time to able unfolding. <clears throat> As we conclude, understand, would you have peace? Do you want peace? Do you long for peace in this world? It's found in Jesus Christ alone. The only way to have peace is to be united to Christ by faith. Jesus said, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. And no one comes to the Father except by me. Would you have peace? It's found in Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be at peace with God. And then and only then will you know 
the peace that comes from God. Amen. Amen. Father, we look to you. We call upon your name. Even as we live in a day of hostility and opposition, we look to you, Lord, that you grant us your perfect peace, that you would sustain and bless us as we go about our daily responsibilities. Bless us with your peace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.